Dr. Candace Still Flippin, a nationally recognized multi-generational workplace scholar, TEDx speaker, and best-selling author. I created Beyond the Gap, a progressive podcast that features guests from different generations and backgrounds. During each segment, we engage in frank discussions and share perspectives on many unspoken workplace topics and offer helpful advice you can use right away. In this podcast, we go beyond the gap and help people build better workplaces and careers. I am so excited to be joined today by John Daniel, an organizational behavior expert. John's also a friend and an amazing TEDx speaker. Today, he's going to discuss a topic that many of you may have struggled with at some point in your career, office politics. Hey, John. How are you? Welcome to Beyond the Gap. Good morning. It's great to be here. First, tell us a little bit about yourself, your very interesting background, and the science and reality of office politics. You know, I uh, have an interesting story in the sense that I am the product of a working class family, as you know, and I have nine brothers and sisters. The defining moment of my life was that my father struggled with alcoholism. And so I talk about one of my primary strengths is resiliency. And I think it's a product of coming out of that life experience of having poverty, a very large family, struggled financially, my dad struggling with his alcoholism. But the other side of that, I had a very strong mother who was also very resilient. And so that has launched my life in terms of thinking about people and culture and organizational behavior. Because if you think about it, I grew up in a family, you know, primarily of 11 people. And it got me thinking about people and why they do what they do and helping to understand them. So, And so how did you get into the field of organizational development? You know, one thing I didn't say about myself was that I, you know, my first job, I've been in banking for 45 years. And my first job at a bank was working as a messenger on the evening shift at a bank in the loading dock because I needed a job to pay for school, given my poverty and background. And so I was majoring in political science because, you know, my parents, my mom being, you know, 17 when she got married, my dad being a high school dropout, I really didn't have any direction. And but I did have a goal to go to college. And so what do I study? Well, you know, I was interested in politics and interested in people. And so I studied that for no apparent reason other than that was what I was interested in. And then I got a job at a bank and I, I really loved working at the bank. You know, I just saw a lot of possibility. And, you know, I left that first bank after 25 years, starting as a messenger as a senior vice president of human resources. And to make a long story short, somewhere along the way, I got drafted into human resources and I found out I loved it. And I loved thinking about and helping people, teaching people, leading people, teaching other people how to lead people. And I got really good at it. And what I realized is that my degree in political science, you know, the science of understanding social science and, and research and so forth was really an asset to me. And so I was blessed that early in my life, I find my life's work and it was kind of accidental, you know, which I think in my research over the past years about how do people end up where they are is more common than this idea that people kind of wake up one day and decide what their dream is and pursue it and they're successful at it. Most of us kind of trip over it at some point. And the key is when you get into that space that you find out, oh my God, I'm good at this and I really love it. So when I was in graduate school, one of my professors said that he spent probably 40% of his time 
managing office politics. And I remember thinking to myself, oh my goodness, that seems like a big waste of time. Yeah. But it's actually more frequently a topic that a lot of my mentees talk about when I speak, people ask about it. I know it's something that you speak to a lot of people about. Maybe if you could just unpack office politics for us a little bit and tell us your point of view and offer any guidance. Yes. Well, you know, I think the first thing that I learned, because I struggled with office politics too as a young person, but keep in mind, I was trained in political science and to get into human resources. And I started thinking about the things I learned in political science and applying those concepts in terms of trying to understand human behavior in organizations. And so to me, the first thing starts with framing office politics, what it is. I mean, it's like conflict. You know, if you ask 100 people in a room to describe the first word that comes to them when you say conflict, almost all of the adjectives are negative because people think of conflict as a negative, but that's the, it's the outcome. Conflict is actually a very positive thing. You know, the, the fact that two people coming together with different ideas if they work together effectively, you come up with better ideas. And yet we think of conflict and we frame it negatively. Our going in story is that it's negative. And so, you know, I've spent my life trying to reframe this notion of conflict, which is related to politics, is the first thing is to start to get people to reframe it. I mean, if you say, you know, boy, I would love work and work would be great if it wasn't for the office politics. Well, let you'd be actually working for an organization where there are no people because, <laughs> because politics is an outgrowth of human behavior and who we are, you know? And as you know, I, I'm a great student of the human behavior, particularly from a neuroscience perspective. And, you know, if we think about it, the brain, you know, all human behavior is rooted in neuro networks in our brain. Right. And we know a couple of things about our brain. One is that first of all, it's only 2% of our body weight, but it takes 20% of our energy. And so, in order to conserve energy, it takes a lot of shortcuts. So our brain doesn't like complexity and it, it works in narratives. You know, it, it lives and experiences life through narratives. And it also has a negative bias, which is very well documented. It's said another way that negative things tend to impact us more powerfully and we tend to remember negative things longer. And that's a survival mechanism built into us evolutionarily. But you take all those things about the brain. Oh, the other thing about the brain is it's binary. Almost automatically, it frames things either good or bad. And if you think about that, that is the dynamics that are occurring in organizations. You know, we have behavior happening from other people that impacts us because what office politics really is, is every individual working to serve their own interest. And if their interests are contrary to ours, that seems to be office politics. And so we frame it based on the way our brain works. We have this narrative we create and it has a negative bias and it has this binary bias. So that means somebody does something it has a negative impact on us. It impacts us negatively. And so we frame it that way and react from that lens. And I think the first thing is this idea of self-awareness and reframing. It's what office politics is and recognizing that it's, it's not about you. Like our egos are pretty big. We think when somebody does something, it's about us. Well, it usually isn't about us. It's more about what's going on in their life. And so I go, going back to the big question, though, it's the first thing about office politics is to reframe it from being something negative to actually being a natural outgrowth of human behavior and how our brains work. And just that reframing is a positive start. So walk me through that. What does that look like in terms of reframing? Well, I think early on in my career, you know, not being reflective, not being self-aware and not understanding what I do now about individuals and, and behavior and organizations. 
somebody would engage in some behavior that was, you know, a conflict or contradictory to my own interest. And I would automatically then focus on, you know, good, bad. That's a bad person doing something negative that's going to hurt me. And then what human beings do is we think we were good mind readers. You know, Malcolm Gladwell's last book, Talking to Strangers, is a good summary about this notion of transparency, that we think we can read other people well. In fact, human beings are pretty good at reading other people, but we make a lot more mistakes of it. So we create a narrative, right, about what, what's behind them. We, we figure out what we think their motives are, and that just leads to all kinds of misunderstandings and emotions. And so to make it a long story short, you go, over the years, when other people engage in behavior that's contradictory to my own interests, I'm very much aware of what my brain might naturally do, which is think binary, go negative, create a a negative narrative, and assume some kind of motivation that's not there. You know what? Our company, through the work that we've done with a company called Sendelaney, we've adopted this principle of assume positive intent. That's my favorite, favorite motto. Exactly. And I think it's actually, it works because it offsets what comes naturally to people is that we take shortcuts in our brain and we have this negative bias. And when he does something that's conflict, you know, contradict our tone of interest, we assume negative intent. We assume motives. And they're usually not there. Now, I'm not naive. There actually are people in organizations that are unhealthy or are motivated by the wrong interest, you know, their own self-interest. And so I caution younger people, you know, that, that you have to be on the lookout for those. But that's not the majority of people. And so if we start trying to reflect on other people's behavior. And the other principle, in, a, in addition to assume positive 10, is acting from a notion of curiosity, which is if I see some behavior that appears to be contradictory to mine or the interests of the organization, I want to go explore. And I want to fight my brain's tendency to create a narrative and to try to assume motive when I don't know, what, I don't know what's going on in that person's head. I mean, the only thing I know is how I'm reacting, but I, don't, I really don't know what, what's going on in their head. Let's explore that a little bit more in the context of your generation. And as a baby boomer, how have you seen the workplace evolve? And what contributions have you all made that we don't talk about that much? Yeah, well, you know, it's fascinating because, you know, I have been in the workplace for 45 years. And, you know, everyone that's been in a workplace that long has data points that they can refer to. That's their experience that they could share. I think the thing that's great about being the head of human resources for large corporations, I mean, I was the head of HR for a 30,000 person company and worked in large corporations my whole life. So I not only have my own experiences, but these millions of data points and just watching human behavior unfold across a sea of people. And so I entered the workforce and the silent generation or the pre-baby boomers were still in the workforce. And if you think about the, their models for leadership came largely from the military and large organizations. I mean, you know, very hierarchical, autocratic kinds of leadership where vulnerability was seen as a weakness. And, you know, the early boomers, me among them, worked for leaders like that. And so we, it was only with the, uh, the explosion of leadership research, starting with James Gregor Burns in the 70s and transformational leadership that you know, people started challenging these old notions of leadership. So what, what I reflect most on is that I've seen four, you know, five generations in the workplace and seen the differences, you know, with a historical context that sort of changed, you know, we've seen leadership change over, over time. I think the, when it comes to my generation, I'm a kind of a mid baby boomer. You know, I was born in 1954, you know, the last of the boomers was sort of 64. So I think the thing that is most defining about our generation is that we did 
really change a lot of the norms that, that operate in society. Many of those to the positive, some of them perhaps to the negative. But, you know, and I think in particular, it can, for example, women. I mean, I, I, I remember the days when there were very few women. I, in my early days at the bank, less than 10% of the officers in the company, which are now about 50 to 60% women, were women. And they were all in operational functions. I mean, not the pr- prestige positions. And it's been awesome to see us break down some of the norms and beliefs that operated in that early, early boomer in the silent generation and to see kind of women blossom in the organization. And I think we paved the way for that. And I think now we have more women graduating from law school and medical school, more women moving into the workplace. And that ground was laid by my female colleagues. And I saw horrible things happen to them. And I think we broke down that, I think, in a positive way. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that perspective. So you touched on this a little bit about when you entered the workplace. As you look back over your career, which is extraordinarily successful, I'm sure you had a lot of learnings. Oh, yes. If you could go back, what is one thing you wish you had known at the start of your career that you had to learn? Yeah, I actually share that a lot. I recently wrote, you know, we have a a tradition at the bank of, uh, which I think is spreading wide now. It's the idea of letters to a young banker. And I I did that for a group. But, and so I've I've talked a lot to young people about what I wish I knew when I was 20 or 25. There's four things that I, that I talk a lot about. One of them is the first thing is, is self-awareness. I mean, the foundation to really human growth is being aware who you are. I mean, you know, as a young person, work in my first started work, you know, I had a lot of the sort of baggage is probably a good word metaphorically for what it's like to grow up in a family of an alcoholic and how that contributed to some really unhealthy behaviors on my part and the work that I had to do to understand who I was, where, where my motivations and beliefs came from and to face uh, some unpleasantness about who I was. And I had the opportunity to be a leader when I was 24 years old. And I was leading people that were 20 and 30 years older than me. And I was horrible. I mean, it was just terrible leader. But I'm, you know, I did a bunch of really dumb things. And, but it was great to, to be a leader at 23 and learn. And so the first thing I say to young people is you got to know who you are. You know, Daniel Goleman sort of the, talks about emotional intelligence, said, you know, self-awareness is, is the idea that you know how your behavior, your moods, your emotions impact others. And you have a really good sense of reading how you impact others. And so I spend a lot of time reflecting on self-awareness. When something goes bad, I have a bad experience with a person. I, the first thing I do is get into my office and reflect on what could I have done better? And I don't think that's instinctive for people. So I think the thing I would tell young people is make sure you know who you are and how you impact others. And another definition of self-awareness is when the ways you describe yourself and think about yourself are in alignment with other people see you. One of the things I work with a lot of leaders with is that, you know, their self narrative is so out of whack with how other people see them. And again, that's a gap of self-awareness. I think the other thing is uh, that I talk a lot about is this idea of perspective. And I was influenced early on by a professor at the university, Carnegie Mellon University at the time, which is in Pittsburgh where I grew up. And professor Kelly wrote a book called how to be a star at work. And he studied successful people and, you know, wrote a book about it. And one of the things that there's, that we don't have time to go into all eight, but one of them is this idea of perspective. You know, I was blessed early on in the company as I was coming up the ladder. And when, 
being an executive now, I kind of have insight into what it's like to be. I was a messenger. I was a teller. I was a loan collector. I mean, I know what it's like. But when I was coming up through the organization and the company management made a decision about something, you know, changed a benefit program or changed a policy, I would often feel the negative or hear the negative experiences of people around me. Like, yeah, the company's doing this to us or taking this away. And my first question was always, I wonder what they're thinking. What are they trying to solve for? You know, I was blessed, I think, with this idea of curiosity. And to me, that's what we, Professor Kelly meant when he talked about perspective. You know, in the Catholic Church, they have, everybody's heard the term devil's advocate. You know, and it comes from the Catholic Church and the old notion of canonization of saints. You know, you canonize a saint through this long process, right? And during that process, in the old days, they have what you call the devil's advocate, which would be a person that would advocate against the person becoming a saint. That's where the word comes from. But this this notion that, you know, when something's going on, that you take a position and try to advocate, well, let me understand what the other side is. And if I could teach young people one thing, it's this, you know, before you let your brain kick in, because it'll do this automatically, create a narrative, and oh, by the way, that negative bias I talked about and that binary bias, it's going to go to a darker place, is step back and have perspective. So two of the four things are that idea of, of self-awareness and perspective. That's really great insight. And I can tell you, I wish I'd had that knowledge when I was starting out in my career. And speaking of starting out in careers, what lessons do you have to learn? You know, as a boomer growing up in that post-World War II era of mobility and achievement, you know, as a young person, big family poor, started a bank as a messenger, you know, I believed in the American dream. One of the reasons I stayed at a bank was because I thought that I could keep moving up. And the good news for me, I had success. I got recognized the harder I, I worked very hard. I invested in myself and I had a lot of career success. And so I was a product of that kind of booming era in American history, which was unique actually in, in many ways. And in my early leadership, I projected my achievement and ambition motives on, on other people. In other words, I assumed they had similar motivations because we were caught up in a sea of growth in the country and in business and it was boom times and if you were a person with go up goals and worked for me, you love me because, you know, I was encouraging you and pushing and rewarding. And I did not realize the stress and threat state I created in all those people who didn't have go up goals. And so I think the, the thing I learned is to basically not project whether it's that or other motives of my own, not project those motives on others and try to and again, one of the great leaders is of understanding, great leaders understand the individual and unique motives of everyone and adjust their leadership style to serve that person. You know, I think that's extraordinary insight. You know, most of my mentors and sponsors were boomers and they pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed me. And I think that that's reflected a lot in my drive and how I've led. And so I think that's an important topic to, to explore and we'll maybe unpack that. And perhaps you can come back and talk to us Absolutely. about that. Well, John, this has been so valuable. What do you consider the key takeaways from this episode on office politics? You know, I think the key thing is, to, is this idea of framing, right? You know, when you think about it, when you have similar ideas and agree with people and you're on the same, you're aligned, things are fine. It's only when conflict comes into play that you have this thing called politics, which is an outgrowth of fact that unresolved conflict. So I think the first thing would be, to frame both conflict, not as a negative, but as 
you know, there's a lot of research that says when two opposing ideas come together and are resolved in an effective way, it results often in better ideas. And that's well-founded in research. So the first thing is that, that notion of kind of framing. Or as I mentioned earlier, when I talked about advice I'd give to my earlier self was this idea of perspective. Right? I think the second thing, and it ties to this, the other part of advice to give myself awareness, is this awareness of our own reaction, right, in politics. I mean, it's deeply rooted in our brain. It's behavior. It's rooted. And, you know, we, we have to just be aware of it. When somebody does something, you know, everybody uses driving, you know, kind of driving along the road. Somebody pulls in front of you. You know, there's this automatic violation of space. There's a raising emotion. You know, it's kind of the root of road rage. But, you know, it's a violation of my space because our brain automatically goes in protective mode and it's negative. And, you know, the first thing I do now, I used to just, you know, get angry and upset and allow this emotion to sweep over me because somebody would cut me off. Well, the same thing happens at work. You know, you get emotionally hijacked. And so the second thing is being immediately aware that you can check your behavior, right? The negative emotion comes from our amygdala, right? It's automatic. In the frontal part of our brain, we have this rational ability to check that by labeling it. And so you'll, I'll see myself mentally now checking myself. If I see something that starts to upset me, which is office politics, by the way, I don't always get this right. <laughs> it's, it's a life's work, but it's just, it's reflecting on and checking yourself. Say, okay, I can feel the emotion rolling over me. I'm feeling a reaction, but I can control that. And what we know from psychology is this notion of appraisal, that if we appraise our emotions, if we label them, it actually moves it out of the lower primal part of our brain into the prefrontal cortex, which actually where we process kind of rational thinking, and it actually does help affect our behavior. And I think the last thing is what, what I talked about is starting from curiosity and assuming positive intent. It's those two principles of, first of all, I'm going to assume positive intent, and I'm going to be curious. And key questions like, tell me what you were thinking, or what were you trying to solve for? And don't start with statements or assumptions, but start with kind of broad curiosity. And I think you know, in conclusion to that is this office politics are a natural outgrowth of human beings working together, doing our thing, working in our own interest. And it's, it's, it's exciting and it's also frustrating and it can wear you down, but only if you let it. That's awesome. Thank you so much, John. As always, it's a yes. pleasure to spend time with well, you. Well, I enjoyed being with you. And I know uh, I, I was a TED Talk participant last year. I'm excited. I know this year you're going to be doing your own TED Talk. So I'll look forward to Thank you, yes. Hearing your, hearing your experience. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thank you all. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us on our first episode of the Beyond the Gap podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. For more information and to download the show notes, please visit us at beyondthegappodcast.com.